This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. I recall that when I was growing up, I was advised by my parents that there were two subjects that polite company avoided, religion and politics. Well, I think that has changed over the years. I mean, where would the Interfaith Dialogue Association be if people didn't discuss religion? And I honestly think that uh, more people today are able to dialogue about political issues without creating enemies. However, I also think that these two taboos have been replaced by other subjects. Take, for instance, the debate between uh, Lagrangian versus Eulerian methods for solving nuclear physics equations. Okay, it's not the hottest topic on talk radio today, but when was the last time you heard someone even broach the subject at a family get-together? Of course, the other subject is abortion. Even among all those who disagree on its place in society, we'll come together to allow that it is the most divisive social, political, and religious issue on the table today. Honestly, I've never been tempted to tackle the topic here on Common Threads because there are so many other opportunities for people to listen, watch, learn, and discuss the various opinions held on abortion. But when I got wind of a new book that is just out, I thought we'd take the plunge. It's called Sacred Choices, The Right to Contraception and Abortion in Ten World Religions. It's a fascinating multi-faith account of the historical and religious perspectives of abortion and, as well as the title implies, contraception. The author is Daniel C. McGuire. He is a professor of moral theological ethics at Marquette University, which is a Catholic institution. He's also president of the Religious Consultation on Population, Reproductive Health, and Ethics. He has a degree in sacred theology from the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome, one of the world's major Catholic universities. And uh, he has written over 150 articles printed in publications such as the New York Times, uh, The Atlantic, USA Today, uh, the Crisis Journal of the NAACP, etc. The articles include Different but Equal, a Moral Assessment of the Women's Liberation, Psychotherapist as Moralist, The Freedom to Die, Sex and Ethical Methodology, A New Look at Death, and Affirmative Action at Bay. One of his many honors, he was listed by Ms. Magazine as one of the 40 male heroes of the past decade, men who took chances and made a difference. His book, The Moral Choice, won Best Scholarly Book of the Year in 1978, and the University of Notre Dame named McGuire one of the best ten teachers in uh, 1983 and 1984. And uh, Daniel McGuire, thank you so very much for taking time off for being with us today. Nice to be with you, Fred. Uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover because, as uh, the title of your book implies, we're talking about the idea of abortion and contraception in ten world religions. But I'm going to start off because I think that everybody is uh, probably most interested in the Christian perspective because that is the obviously the tradition that is going to affect legislation the most here in this country and, of course, social viewpoints, uh, etc. Uh, before we actually get into that, 
What uh, was your uh, uh, what was the main motivation for writing this particular book? Well, uh, thanks to a, a grant from the Packard Foundation, I was able over the past three years to bring together scholars, some fifteen scholars, <clears throat> top scholars from the world's various world's religions. And what we set out to do, and what we've done, and what I have put into the book, Sacred Choices, uh, is to show that in uh, most of these religions, there is a conservative view regarding family planning and contraception. It's understandable. Most of the religions were uh, born at a time when the real problem on the human race was depopulation. And, uh, you know, they say that uh, prehistoric persons lived on the average of 18 years. Uh, the average in ancient Greece was 22, factoring in infant death. Uh, 20 in ancient Rome, 37 in medieval Europe. And you get the picture. <laughs> Until our time, the real problem was not um, contracepting and holding back births, but trying to keep people alive so that we could keep the species going on the planet. So we're not surprised to find conservative views in all of the world religions regarding uh, contraception and abortion as a, as a backup. But what we've shown, and this is the first time this has been shown, that these traditions are very complex and very rich. And even though it is perfectly legitimate to read them in a very conservative way, for example, in Catholicism, the Pope's reading of these traditions regarding contraception and abortion is, we would say, one possible reading. It's not mine, but our message, our unique message is that there is another possible reading, equally orthodox, equally well-grounded, and in my view, considerably more moderate and more mainstream, but also it's, it stands on equal footing uh, with the conservative view. And this is what you find in other religions, too. When you get into Buddhism, for example, you would see the very first precept of Buddhism is not to kill. And some Buddhists and some Jains and Hindus take that so seriously, they will not even kill insects. So you'd say, well, clearly there'll be a no-choice view on abortion in those religions, and indeed you do find that. However, you also find that these religions, as they work their way through history and meet life in all of its complexity and full of surprises as it is, that you cannot always do this, that, that birth, which is certainly a, a beautiful experience and a sacred choice, uh, is not always good. It can actually be a curse. So we're saying that um, giving birth is a sacred choice when all is well and the circumstances are ready to welcome that child. But uh, contraception and even abortion as a backup is, is an equally sacred choice when that's required for serious, good, serious reasons. So that's really, we, we hope there's a bit of a bridge being made in the book Sacred Choices because we're really saying we don't have to have the pro-choice and no-choice or pro-life, however you describe them, shouting at one another, either I'm right or you're right. But these religious traditions are so rich that both positions can be grounded, and their response, therefore, is let us respect one another. Our traditions allow us this freedom. Since you move in Catholic circles, do you run into a number of people whose opinion simply is, it's what the Pope says, hence it is my position? Uh, exactly. In fact, most people, even people who are otherwise very sophisticated, um, look on religions as almost the way they look on the National Football League. Now, I'll show you how I compare that. Um, the National Football League says it takes 10 yards to get a first down. 
Now, if somebody had liberal views and said, no, I think it'll only take nine, well, you have to laugh because the official position is the only position in organizations of that sort. Religions are not of that sort. Religions are heroic efforts. I see them as, in their positive side, classics in the art of cherishing life and responding to its mysteries and its possibilities. But they're very complex. They're, they're never um, of a single piece. They're not a seamless garment. They're more of a patchwork quilt. And you can, without doing any violence to these traditions, on a number of issues, find diversity. And the diversity is blessed by the traditions themselves. So even as you say, I'm working in a Catholic context, Marquette University is a Catholic Jesuit university. I've taught at Notre Dame, as you mentioned. I've also taught at the Catholic University of America. And uh, my degree is from a Roman Vatican authorized university and, and so on. So how do I do with this? Well, one of the things that I show and, and the other Catholic authors working with us is that even in Roman Catholicism, there has been uh, certainly the conservative view represented now by the Vatican, but also another view. I've been talking a good bit in recent years about a saint, Saint Antoninus, and Saint Antoninus was a, um, a Dominican monk. He was also uh, Archbishop of Florence. He was also a supremely good moral theologian. And in the 15th century, he wrote the first uh, extensive treatment of abortion. It took a long time, in other words, to get around to that. But he wrote it, and he was pro-choice, as we'd say today, for early abortions when necessary to save um, the woman. Now, that is basically unknown. And what did they do to Antoninus? Did he lose his job for this? No, not at all. Uh, he kept his job as Archbishop of uh, Florence. Uh, he's buried in the cathedral there today. And in 1523, he was canonized the saint of the Catholic Church, which in Catholic teaching means that he is a model of, for all Catholics. That's what saints are. And so what I would love to do, Fred, is to find a statue. I haven't been able to do it. I'd love to find a statue of St. Antoninus and send it to all Catholic bishops, including the Pope, and uh, ask them before they pronounce on the subject of abortion if they would pause and say a little prayer to their saintly uh, predecessor, uh, St. Antoninus, who was pro-choice. And the example, the exception that he allowed to save the life of the woman is not a huge exception where there's good medicine today, but in his day it was an enormously wide, uh, far-reaching exception, and it was completely peacefully received by the Church. And prior to that, you're saying that abortion was not allowed to save the life of the woman. If if there was a woman and a child in the midst of delivery, uh, or, or even be before that, if there were complications within the pregnancy, uh, if they were going to choose one over the other, they would choose the child over the mother. Is that correct? No, that, that was never uh, never defined. What is remarkable about the early history of abortion is how rarely it was treated at all. Now, that's particularly strange since the Christian tradition, like the Jewish tradition from which it sprang, uh, was always what I call moral-centric. Uh, it was very concerned about morality and spoke on all kinds of moral issues. I think the, the relative silence on the subject of abortion for a great number of years and an absence of systematic treatment of it would indicate to me a certain tolerance because we do know that it was going on. There were cases very early, even in the third century, Tertullian, who was a very rigorous 
uh, early Christian writer, he heard about what we would call today craniotomy, uh, where there's an impossible birth situation and no medical means to do anything other than crush the, inf uh, the infant, by then an infant about to be born. And he described it as a cruel necessity. Now, those words are, you wouldn't say um, rape was a cruel necessity. You'd say it's, to it's cruel and totally unnecessary. But cruel necessity implies a, a favorable moral judgment on this tragic situation. So what you have is a, a long history with great diversity of practice. And by the time it got articulated in theory, and it took a long time, it was pretty clear that um, the Archbishop was not an innovator. Archbishops rarely would be. They're more administrators. But he was not an innovator of a new theory. In fact, he was quoting another Dominican who had already said it, and again, there was no uh, hubbub about it. And my view historically is that when a position like that is expressed, and it was expanded on, even made more liberal in subsequent centuries, it means that that was the um, basic consensus that had been established over the centuries, and where it got started is lost. We don't fully know. But no one was disturbed by it. It was looked on as, yes, that's about what you can say on this subject. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue here on WGVU. My name is Fred Stella, and today we're discussing the book Sacred Choices, the Right to Contraception and Abortion in Ten World Religions. And we're talking with its author, Daniel C. McGuire. Uh, Daniel, it seems like you could have written an entire book on Christianity alone. What was uh, the impetus to be as uh, inclusive as you were? Well, I thought it would be very interesting to, uh, even the Second Vatican Council in the Catholic Church said, we've got to start talking to these other world religions because they have discovered truth, and we would be benefited greatly by uh, dialoguing with them. And I think, too, there's, because of the position of the Vatican and the United Nations, where I don't think it should be listed as a nation, you don't do that for other religions, it should be listed as a non-governmental organization and make its case there. But their, their position there has been so prominent. They have also uh, worked closely for the first time in 14 centuries with the conservative uh, Islamic, some of the conservative Islamic countries. And they have given the impression on the world stage very loudly at um, major international conferences that religions are pitted against any such thing as, as choice on contraception or abortion. So we felt it was good to show that that simply is untrue and that there are, not just in one tradition or another, that all of these great classics of human spirituality uh, are very affirming of life, but also affirming of life's complexity. And they all come in varying ways. They come to a recognition that this, uh, this is a freedom that is necessary in certain cases, that the choice for abortion is the best that life offers in certain cases. So we thought it was very interesting to put that out there. And we're, we're going to do more than this book, by the way, Sacred Choices, is just our first presentation. We will put out a university press book, which will contain all the original essays, and also a group called the Duncan Group, in um, working in Milwaukee. They're professional documentary makers, are working to do a PBS uh, documentary on this subject, and we also plan to take it overseas. I could add a point here which has been uh, very helpful to me in pushing the book. I've written a dozen books, and uh, this is the first book, Sacred Choices, that um, I can feel very non-venal in promoting it because I've signed over 100% of the royalties to 
what we call the Sacred Choices Project. And our goal, and it's very immodest, Fred, I assure you, our goal is to change international discourse on abortion and on family planning. And the book Sacred Choices is just the first step in that direction. We plan to go overseas and have meetings with scholars and journalists and policymakers in various places in the Muslim world and in Latin America to try to let this be known that there is this freedom. I guess you might say our our prime audience in some way was women, um, the women who have made for serious reasons abortion choices and wonder whether they're still a good Muslim or a good Hindu or a good Catholic, good Protestant, good Jew. We wanted them to know, yes, there there are grounds, serious grounds, uh, established by excellent first-rate scholars in these religions that show that that's an option which is, again, a sacred choice when the circumstances are, are serious enough to justify it and that people can have had an abortion and be perfectly good faith and recognize that it is no offense to their religion. Let me ask you, uh, ask you a couple of other historical questions. Now, I've been under the impression that one of the reasons that early Christianity, early, early Christianity, uh, became so opposed to abortion, if in fact it did, you're, you're telling me that there hasn't been an awful lot uh, written on it, but right. I heard that it was uh, opposed to abortion because it wanted to distinguish itself uh, from Judaism as much as possible, and that Judaism had a little bit more of a liberal uh, viewpoint on this. Uh, am I getting my uh, information from the wrong sources here? That, that doesn't seem to be um, a predominant thing. Of course, that was a preoccupation as Christianity split out from Judaism, but the main issue, of course, was in, in the status of Jesus and his, uh, what his reality was. But um, I think the, a bigger issue was that there was a, a tremendous anti-sexual bias that crept into the early church which had not crept in as much to Judaism, so in that sense you're correct, you know, it, it was a difference. But there was a strong anti-sexual bias that came in, and um, with that, sexuality was looked on as something unclean and unworthy and sinful, and St. Augustine even said it's, it's the conduit of original sin. How could a little baby be born with original sin? Well, it was the sexual passion that led to its conception that that befouled this poor little creature, these terribly neuroticizing concepts that went in there. And so abortion was part of that sordid sexual agenda. And they did come to the conclusion, uh, they got this from Stoic philosophers, that the purpose of sexuality primarily is reproduction, and they, the Christians bought that from the Stoic philosophers. And that's why they considered it um, uh, sterilization for a long time to be more seriously wrong than abortion. Now that's that's interesting in the Christian history. Why? Well, sterilization means that you know, if the only way you can justify sex is reproduction, after sterilization you'll never justify it. Whereas abortion, uh, it just uh, frustrated one instance, but you could come back and get pregnant again after it. And so they obviously didn't cast it as it's cast in modern times as is the early embryo or fetus a, a person, a fully-fledged person? They didn't cast it that way. Their main preoccupation was a terribly phobic attitude toward uh, sexuality. And why, another reason to go back to your earlier question, to talk to other religions, it's um, so interesting. One of the chapters in, in the book, Sacred Choices, 
is by uh, one of the Jewish scholars, and she refers to uh, high sex in there. And uh, that's so interesting. Her chapter is called Chinese Men and the Art of High Sex. And what you see in the religions of Taoism and Confucianism, the principal religions along with Buddhism in the, in the Chinese tradition, is a very positive attitude toward sexuality, which they realized rarely has anything to do with reproduction, but has a number of other very healthy uh, functions in human life and in human uh, relationships. And they don't have that. Uh, Christians tended to grow up with a... Well, somebody recalled it once, uh, psycho, ecclesiogenic psychoneurosis, because the church just put on so much guilt about impure thoughts, dirty jokes, and all that kind of... They don't talk about sex as dirty or impure, but as one of the beautiful, exhilarating um, realities of life. And as a result, they're very realistic about it. One of our Chinese authors that I quote in Sacred Choices uh, points out that the Chinese government now in the People's Republic, uh, will they're putting uh, condoms into hotel and motel drawers uh, so that people will not just, in a time of passion with no resources available, be reproducing more than they want to. I said just ironically to the two Chinese scholars, well, apparently our approach is different. We put Bibles in motel drawers and maybe thinking that if a couple came there to have sex, they would find the Bible and read that instead. Well, of course, spoken in jest, but behind the jest was the reality that the, the Chinese are simply admitting sexuality is there. It's a strong impulse. It has to be regulated, especially regarding its uh, fertility capacity in heterosexual sex. And um, they're just more open and ready, as cultures that are more comfortable with sex are more ready to to get people um, prepared to have sex in a responsible way. So many of the counselors I know when they are facing a young woman who is pregnant and doesn't want to be and is not at all ready to carry on the work of a pregnancy, and they'll explain, well, it just happened, sort of, you know, as though totally surprised. Uh, I call it the surprised virgin syndrome, where um, it, it doesn't just happen, as I point out, um, the uh, advent of sexual ardor is, if nothing else, noticeable. And it doesn't just happen, but there's a certain tendency, if you think sex is bad, preparing for it by having condoms and so forth in preparation would make it even worse, <laughs> kind of add to the malice of forethought. So that's part of the sickness of our culture. And I found in working with these scholars over the past three years and preparing for sacred choices, I found uh, it's so refreshing to see different attitudes that, from which we can learn a lot. And in the Jewish tradition, uh, sex is one of the, I don't want to call it duties, but certainly one of the recommended activities of the Sabbath. Right. Yes, that's a, a, a long, lovely rabbinic thing. that They realize that in a uh, marital relationship, for example, that very easily uh, pragma can overwhelm eros, you might say, and the busyness of life and the uh, working and so many challenges and so on, that you kind of uh, forget to celebrate your sexuality and the sexual dimension of your relationship. So many of the rabbis over the years had that lovely tradition of saying that the Sabbath is a time of great joy and celebration and thanksgiving for all the gifts that God has given us. And a, a, it's a time that uh, couples should make love um, to celebrate that dimension of their relationship, too. 
that is very healthy. And of course, the Jewish tradition, as, I, as you point out, um, had a more healthy attitude toward sexuality. One of the old rabbinic writings says, on the day of judgment, we will be asked to give account of all the joys that we could have had and did not take advantage of. Uh, in other words, they saw joy and ecstasy as, as a human destiny and obviously recognized very much that all these things can be abused. Sexuality can be abused. Uh, all of our freedoms can be abused. But we can't become so obsessed with the negative potential there that we uh, miss the gift that is uh, uh, given to us. Right, that kind of religion that uh, grants you merit for how many things you don't do. Exactly. Yeah, that that could be so negative. And so many people, I mean, when you read in the in the Hebrew writings, uh, thy, thy laws are my songs, uh, you'd have to say, well, boy, that doesn't sound like what I have grew up with. Everything was thou shalt not this and thou shalt not that. But they, they took a much more positive view and, and saw that um, the real religion is, well, like David, you, you dance. It's a dancing phenomenon of gratitude and appreciation and awe. And all of that uh, led, I think, to healthier attitudes toward sex and then toward reproduction. Daniel, we're just about out of time, but before you go, I want to mention that the book is Sacred Choices, the Right to Contraception and Abortion in Ten World Religions, and uh, it is published by Fortress Press, correct? Fortress Press, right. Okay. It's, it's available on Amazon or we have a sacredchoices.org website and a um, religiousconsultation.org uh, website where information on purchasing the book and it, it's going from somewhere from twelve to thirteen dollars so it's not it's not a backbreaker in that regard excellent uh... well listen i would like to invite you to come back next week uh, we haven't even touched on contraception seriously and we have a few more world religions that we want to tackle as well Okay. Uh, Daniel McGuire is uh, my guest today, and he will return with us next week. My name is Fred Stella. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week we began our discussion with Daniel C. McGuire on his book, Sacred Choices, 
the right to contraception and abortion in 10 world religions. Daniel McGuire is a professor of moral theological ethics at Marquette University, which is, by the way, a Catholic institution. He's president of the Religious Consultation on Population, Reproductive Health, and Ethics. He has a degree in sacred theology from the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome, one of the world's most Catholic universities. I should say major Catholic universities, but I think most works just as well. He is the author of Sacred Choices, of course, as I said. He has written over 150 articles printed in publications, such as the New York Times, the USA Today. He's uh, written articles that include Different but Equal, A Moral Assessment of the Women's Liberation, Psychotherapist as Moralist, The Freedom to Die, Sex and Ethical Methodology, A New Look at Death, and Affirmative Action at Bay. And Ms. Magazine once listed him as one of the 40 male heroes of the past decade, men who took chances and made a difference. And his book, Moral Choice, The Moral Choice, won Best Scholarly Book of the Year in 1978. And the University of Notre Dame named McGuire one of the best 10 teachers in 1983-84. And we're very happy to have uh, Daniel back, and we're going to talk more this week about the other world religions. We focused an awful lot on Christianity last time, for good reason. Uh, and we're also going to talk about contraception. Daniel, welcome back to Common Threads. Thank you, Fred. Nice to be back with you. Yes. Um, we were talking a little bit at the end of the last show about how uh, some religions tend to celebrate sex. Uh, we were talking about Buddhism and Judaism. Um, y uh, you mentioned briefly Hinduism. What I was wondering is, have you found in, in your studies any prohibitions against contraception in any other religions other than, obviously, Catholicism? And I also know that extremely orthodox Judaism, such as uh, the Hasidic movement, they frown upon uh, contraception as well in, in many cases. Well, what, what you see is there was an enormous stress in the early uh, centuries of, of most of these religions on um, having children and on fertility because that was really the strength of a nation uh, was to have children. So uh, in general, you would say they would, they would be against um, family planning because so many of these children died. I mean, I have personal experience of that. My father was born in 19th century Ireland, and uh, he, there were 13 children born in his family, only five of whom survived into adulthood. And I would ask my father, what happened to the others? And he would say, oh, well, the one wee boy died of the fever, and the other wee boy died of the cramps, and the wee girl died of this and that. In other words, medicine was very poor, nutrition was very poor, and you were lucky if, if you got five out of 13. Well, that's the condition that most of the religions were working on for years, and so they they were not um, they, they they did not encourage contraception. And uh, contraception went on. There's there's evidence of withdrawal was a very common mode of contraception because they didn't have the technical mechanical means uh, to do it. It was always going on, but there would be a negative, generally negative view toward it since the need for healthy babies was a, it was really a, uh, a national need. It was a service to your community to do it. And uh, you still find that in, in a lot of cultures. Uh, some of the cultures in Africa, for example, are one of our Nigerian scholars said that 
when he first heard uh, Princess Diana when she was first pregnant, and she said she had this strange experience that not only was she pregnant, but that all of England was pregnant with her. And uh, Jacob Olupona, a scholar from Nigeria, said, that is so interesting, he said, because that's the experience in our little villages that every pregnant woman has. The whole village is pregnant with her. It's, it's hope to the people. So in answer to your question, yes, uh, you could say there would be a negativity uh, toward limiting and preventing that kind of experience, and also a tendency to feel that this is the most important thing that, that women uh, can do. But what we found in working on the book Sacred Choices and in this project over these three years was that even though you have trends like that, those aren't the only trends. And we also find that there was a recognition that uh, too many births, a birth which is normally a blessing can also be a curse, fertility can be a curse, and that there has to be some means of uh, moving away from it. So it was not always done systematically uh, in, in a lot of these cultures. There were oral traditions at work. And so there was, there were both, both stresses were there. Reproduce as best you can, but there are times when reproduction is not what you need and not what we need. And so as far back as history goes, you find even tribes with which were still nomadic recognized that there was uh, just so much people that they could handle. And um, they made adjustments in various ways, and including some sad ways such as uh, infanticide and um, particularly the infanticide of one of twins. If twins were born, it was very, a lot of cultures, the other one would be killed at, at birth simply because they felt they couldn't uh, sustain them. In talking to the various people representing the other traditions around the world, I mean, did you find people who today uh, might have to think twice about using contraception because they believe it's a sin, because they believe that uh, clerics would be opposed to them? Well, that was certainly very strong, and when I got my degree at the uh, Pontifical Gregorian University in, in back in the uh, in 1950s, um, that was certainly my view, and certainly what I uh, w taught people afterwards. So it was very locked into Catholicism right into the um, 1960s. No, I, uh, we obviously would assume that about Catholicism. I was talking yeah. about uh, the other traditions, like uh, did you ever meet a Hindu or a Buddhist uh, that uh, would not use contraception on moral grounds? Uh, I did not, and the group that I was with uh, did not uh, mention that that was a factor there. But I, I would say that's a very limited experience because a lot of people people don't talk about their their sexual life, and I think that you could you could assume that that attitude would would be there. It's it's going to be stronger in cultures where women um, do not have have equal standing. It, it was less strong, for example, in Native American cultures. And a lot of the, the there are a number of Native American cultures in in North America here. We often think of just their Indians, one and all. They're very different, very different views. But in a number of them, um, this business was considered women's business. So contraception was considered women's business, and even abortion, when necessary, was considered women's business. And women uh, together working on it settled that situation. So it is. It's very hard to uh, to find that the the taboo um, survives life for very long, because there can be circumstances where people realize we can't have any more. Even surprisingly, um, Thomas Aquinas, when he was commenting on Aristotle, 
and his politics where Aristotle said you can't have too many people in a community and if you uh, do, um, first of all, you could tell them, uh, some of them to go off and start another community somewhere else, colonization. Uh, but if you don't have that opportunity, then uh, the law should see to it that not too many children are born. And Thomas Aquinas remarkably agreed. And he didn't get into the thorny question, how's the law going to do that? What kind of sanctions is it going to put on? But Thomas Aquinas, uh, the principal teacher in the Roman Catholic tradition, said, yes, if, if too many people could destroy a society. It would cause dissension where there's insufficient resources and, and so on. So what you see in a lot of these religions is, is contrary movements, the movement toward fertility, which is fully understandable, which would you know, make contraception questionable, and at the same time the recognition that fertility has to be managed humanly because, as scientists will put it, no species can reproduce without limit. And there are only two ways that that's going to happen, that you're going to limit your uh, population. One is by uh, high mortality. The other is by low fertility. And we are the only species that has the freedom to choose low fertility. And that thought has seemed to dawn on us from the very beginnings of history. I'm assuming that you get into discussions, debates, whatever, with people who come from a very strong pro-life stance. Am I correct? Certainly, yes. Okay. Uh -huh. One of the things that I hear over and over again from that side of the social political fence is that uh, the pro-choice side of the argument is a... Um, how do they put it? A culture of death. That's right. A culture right. of death, and they are promoting a culture of life. Right. Uh, and one of the things that I believe they that is implied sometimes, not all the time, is that uh, abortion is for mere convenience sake, which right. it may it may very well be. Although I, I I doubt that many people just use it like they'd use a condom. Right. Um, but then again. What do you think is your responsibility and the responsibility of like-minded people? Uh, say, for instance, in India right now, where there is so much abortion uh, due to the sex of the fetus, because male babies are valued so much, and right. the the abortion uh, the abortion numbers are so lopsided that it's it's affecting the society. There's just so many more men than there are women right now. Um, do you feel you have a responsibility to address issues like that? Oh, yeah, and our scholars do, and I, I bring it into the book Sacred Choices also, um, where they, for example, our Buddhist scholar points out in there, and the Hindu scholar also agrees, um, that it's considered a hateful act, which is unthinkable in Buddhism. Um, the idea of limiting births is not unthinkable in many parts of Buddhism. But the idea of limiting birth only to men is so negative toward toward girls and toward women that they would consider that wrong, and uh, it would produce terribly bad karma for you if you if you were to engage in that. So I think that uh, you're pointing to a problem where everybody, the so-called conservatives and so-called liberals, would say that uh, sex selection is, uh, except in certain instances is a very bad idea and it reveals the enormous amount of sexism in our society and what we find too and what was found at the united nations in their in their last conference in 1994 <clears throat> in cairo 
is that uh, the status of women is the secret to success in matters of contraception and even the use of abortion. And what they found is that the surest finding regarding population, um, because, you know, that population is a problem. We have, uh, when I was born in 1931, <clears throat> there were uh, 2 billion people on the planet, and now we've passed 6, and we're heading toward 9, 10, or 11. So obviously it, it, it is a problem. But what they found is that the surest solution for that problem is the empowerment and education of women. For example, there's a marvelous example, and I do bring it into the book, Sacred Choices, is um, in Kerala, K-E-R-A-L-A, one of the states of India. It's one of the poorest states. But they have um, a, a tremendous record for um, reproduction. They're, they're actually below replacement level, um, and they're, they're totally open to contraception and even abortion when that they're is... They're poor, but they're poor. literate. They're very, that's the key. The, the, I think you so how did they get so good? <laughs> and the answer is they are fanatical, beautifully fanatical on the subject of education. When I first read one of the studies, they said the, the dropout rate of, from school for, for girls in the first five years, and that's when you would become literate, was zero. I thought it had to be a misprint. But they're very concerned for no one to drop out, but they have a particular stress on women. They also stress uh, women taking more authority, economic authority, and looking for microloans and getting some independence. They're also very disputatious. They're not afraid to hear other views. That's why I think our message is, is one that, you know, with Carol as an example, could go over. You, like I can say to the, to the Pope or a conservative Muslim or a conservative Hindu or whatever, yeah, you, you, you have one possible reading of your tradition, and I can see where you come from. Indeed, I was there for a long time in my own tradition. But now I, I discover very clearly, and all these scholars have helped me to see, that there is a more moderate view which uh, allows for a greater degree of freedom. I think this could make these religions appear actually uh, more attractive. Uh, I know with my students at Marquette University, and when I teach them that that uh, on disputed matters like this, where there are good reasons and good authorities on both sides, their consciences are free. It's an old Catholic principle where there's doubt, there's freedom, and if there are good reasons and good authorities on both sides, there is doubt, and you are free. And the reaction from students, Catholic students, is to say, well, then I guess I really could remain a Catholic because the tradition is more sensible and more sensitive than I had been led to believe. If you're just joining us... The program is Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association, and my guest today is Daniel C. McGuire. We're talking about his latest book, Sacred Choices, The Right to Contraception and Abortion in Ten World Religions. You know, Daniel, the uh, first time I was introduced to you, not in person, we've never met, but uh, I, I read an article about you where the book Sacred Choices was almost a footnote. The uh, The body of the article was actually about uh, heretics like you teaching in Catholic universities and colleges. Right. Uh, uh, heretics, of course, in, in quotation marks. Uh, tell us a little bit about that situation. What is it like to go against the grain and be a teacher in a major... Catholic institution of higher learning. Well, that is that is an interesting uh, subject. You know, 40 years ago, if you asked, uh, you talked about a Catholic theologian. What were you talking about? You were talking about a priest. Uh, it was a it was a clerical club, as it were, 
and theology was done largely in seminaries, and then those books went out into colleges and so on, but the theologians were basically all men. That changed with the Second Vatican Council in the early 1960s, and uh, lay people moved into the world and became theologians, and for the first time in the history of the Church in great numbers, lay women entered uh, the realm of theology. And where did they go? Well, they didn't stay in seminaries. In fact, seminaries were closing down a good bit. Theology moved in the United States, for example, to the university campus, so that uh, even in uh, uh, universities that are not Catholic or colleges, there frequently are courses on Catholic theology that are, are found there. Now, what did that do? Well, it took away all the controls. <clears throat> in the old days, when the clergy were doing all the theology, if someone came up with a somewhat more liberal view, they were simply removed from their teaching position, and their books even used to be removed from circulation, and that, that was settled. Um, that, that view would not go further. Now, of course, the essence of uh, teaching in a university is academic freedom. It's what makes a university a university. And interestingly, it was Christians back at um, Paris and Bologna, Oxford, back in the uh, 12th century, that thought of this as a way to have uh, to pursue learning is to get many minds competing freely together, as Cardinal Newman put it. So it's it's really a Christian idea, and the Christian idea is flourishing as far as academic freedom goes. This is very troubling to the Vatican. So the Associated Press story, which I was sorry concentrated mainly on this dimension because it's a little more exciting. The Vatican now is trying to say that nobody can teach theology like I can't teach theology at Marquette without getting a mandate from the local bishop, who interestingly is usually not a theologian. He's an administrator and possibly very good at that. He's a pastor working in a pastoral way, but not a professional theologian. So professional theologians working in all kinds of fields and working in languages like Ugaritic and Hebrew and Greek and everything else, supposedly would get their legitimation from a non-theologian who wouldn't really be able to pass, pass a, it's not a discredit to him, wouldn't be able to pass a graduate exam in the subject. So obviously what is it? it's an attempt to get back control. So when the American bishops went along with this uh, two years ago, I immediately had a letter in the New York Times the next morning saying that I would not accept a mandate if offered. I would mark it return to sender because I have a mandate. What's my mandate to teach based on? It's based on my degree. It's based on my competence. It's based on the assessment of my work by peers and reviewers of my work over these 30-some years. Um, that's my mandate, and uh, it, it, I don't need another mandate from from somebody else. It, it's almost like saying that a brain surgeon could only perform surgery if one of the administrators in the hospital says so, uh, rather than using his own expertise or her own expertise. Well, that's what's happening with HMOs. That's exactly <laughs> what's happening, and that's just as bad. So it's the same thing. These are control for different reasons, and the Vatican and a number of other theologians have joined me in in saying um, that they will they will not do it. And a number of university presidents are are putting it this way: saying, "Well, that's a matter between the bishop and the theologian. It's almost a don't ask, don't tell." <laughs> so I think it's it's destined to become a dead letter because it contradicts the very nature of the university. And uh, so I'm more than happy to say I wouldn't wouldn't do it. And I also think it gives the religion a bad name. I think when you show the freedoms, is what we're doing in the book Sacred Choices, we're showing the freedoms that exist for good, decent people to disagree, even on issues like contraception and even on abortion, then you realize that it, it can be done in the framework of the best insights of that tradition. And 
you have to hope that'll be a wiser situation. So the mandate business is, as far as I'm concerned, no go. Well, good luck. Okay. Do, do you have any idea uh, when it's going to come down to uh, mattresses, as they say in in yeah. Brooklyn? Uh, yeah. Now, well, I think I think it's just going to erode. I, I think some trouble will be caused for smaller Catholic colleges and by zealous bishops on the scene. But I, I find the bishops have all, the bishops have already said we can't enforce this. You know, we can request that you ask for a mandate, or we can offer you a mandate, but we cannot force you to take it. So, in other words, the sanctions aren't really there. I, I think it will be a chilling effect. I, I think it could hurt. It will drive some Catholic scholars, it already has, to non-Catholic campuses where they can do their work in peace. So it's an unfortunate effort at thought control, and um, I think ultimately it will fail. Tell us a little bit about uh, this television project that you're involved in. Uh, yeah. It's with uh, WTTW, which is, uh, right. isn't that the PBS affiliate? Uh, yes, that's PBS in Chicago, mm -hmm. and um, a group called the Duncan Group uh, has uh, taken a great interest in, in sacred choices and realized that it's something new to be saying that there can be a conservative and also a more moderate reading, and that both are on equal footing. So uh, they worked with WTTW, who will market it to affiliates around the world, uh, and around the country, rather, and um, we are also going to do an international version of this. And um, they're a first-rate company, the Duncan Group. Um, you can find them at duncanentertainment.org uh, on the web. They've won a great number of prizes, and they'll be showing. The, you know, they'll they'll show the the conservative voices. You'll you'll hear the conservative voices in Judaism and. Um, Islam, Catholicism, and elsewhere, but then they will show that alongside that, um, the real big news is the other view is, is equally orthodox and equally respectable. Neither one is the official view. And um, they found that very exciting, and so did PBS, who uh, feel that, uh, yeah, that, that's the kind of message that public television should get out there. It's also, I think, we haven't mentioned that in, what we're dealing with here is a religious freedom issue. If, as we argue and argue strongly, both the, the no-choice and the pro-choice position on abortion are religiously grounded, then both are exercises of religious freedom, and both positions deserve protection in law. Many politicians would like to just side with the most conservative, rigorous view, um, for example, that of the Pope, and uh, they would, you know, that, that limits the freedom of uh, not only Catholics but, and, and Protestants, whoever. It also limits the freedom of American citizens. So we see this as a faith-based, pro-choice position that deserves protection in American law and in every law. Uh, have you tried to influence uh, legislators? Oh, yeah. Legislators are definitely on our target. I have uh, been involved in briefings over the years at, at Congress. Um, Geraldine Ferrara one time invited me down to speak to Catholic congresspersons and uh, to point out that, that there is this freedom within Catholicism, that Catholicism is, is not uh, a straitjacket kind of thing on debatable issues where good people disagree. And we intend to do that not only here, but as we visit, we expect to go to, I'll be going to Brazil, to Sao Paulo, and to Chile, and uh, we'll be going to some Muslim countries. And we will again be stressing that um, this, is, this is a freedom that should be respected in law, 
because again our position is is religiously grounded this these these are religion scholars who are working with me and who are behind the book sacred choices uh, by the way uh, this radio station you're speaking on right now wgvu has a tv affiliate which is a pbs station so uh, we We'll probably be seeing it here in Grand Rapids. I would hope so, and I would hope that local people who would like to see it will uh, call their station and let them know that this is going to be available. Um, probably in the fall of 2002, the uh, taping for it is already going on here and um, in Europe and in Asia, so that they'll they'll give a good, true picture of the fact that there is that conservative view and, and saying that's okay, and people with that view obviously should not have abortions. But that's not the only view, and, and that's our big message. Okay. Well, listen, Daniel, we are out of time for this uh, edition of the program, but I want to just get a little bit of information out. Again, the book is Sacred Choices, The Right to Contraception and Abortion in Ten World Religions, and it is authored by our guest, Daniel C. McGuire. It's uh, published uh, out of Fortress Press, and your, uh, your website, again, is... The website is, one of them is sacredchoices.org, so www.sacredchoices.org, and another one is Religious Consultation, all written as one, religiousconsultation.org, and there you will find all the information needed to um, to get this book, and it's uh, only going for around 12 or $13. We wanted to keep it keep the price down because we're so anxious to get this discussion moving. Daniel, we appreciate your time and wish you the best of luck. Okay, thanks very much, Fred. Good to be with you. My name is Fred Stella. This is Common Threads on WGVU. Please join us next week. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.